Welcome to Six Count. I'm your host, Zara Wild, bringing you the jazz and swing scene from the Capital Region. Skip, thank you so much for being willing to talk with me this morning. Well, you're welcome. It's nice to uh, meet you. I'd like to talk first about your time with the Skip Parsons Riverboat Jazz Band. Can you share a little bit about how you guys got together and what that was like? Well, back in the 50s, when I was still in school, this music was still pretty much in vogue. And uh, we decided we'd like to uh, take this route of uh, traditional jazz, New Orleans, Chicago, early style. And uh, so we, we, we had some jam sessions and uh, met some people who were interested. And so uh, uh, finally we got a group of us together and we decided to start the band. And uh, we called it the Riverboat Six back in 1956. Hmm. And, because uh, there were six of you. There were six of us. And then Carl Lunsford, a very well-known banjo player on this scene of this music, uh, he's now in San Francisco area, and uh, he came on the scene as a banjo player, and so we added him. So uh, we decided to change the band from Riverboat Six to uh, Riverboat Jazz Band. Okay. So that's how that happened. And what were some of your most memorable gigs that you've had together as a band? Well, back in those days, we we worked the clubs and we began to travel around places uh, northeast. You know, we went to Montreal, Toronto, Cleveland, Boston, whatever, big cities and stuff. And uh, you played six nights a week. Wow. And uh, it was a it was a job. It was nine to three. You played six hours and. Uh, you know, there was people on a Tuesday night. But then, uh, of course, as moving ahead a long ways fast, as uh, cell phones and everything came in on the scene, why that six night a week stuff just came to an end. And the big bands that were traveling also, uh, they just do that for, uh, just for uh, commitment to playing good music. Uh, we're not, none of us getting rich on this thing. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, we started to play those things, and we, we used to work like maybe five or six gigs in a weekend. We'd play fraternity houses three to six in the morning, and we'd play noontime, you know, the next day and stuff like that. We'd put five or six gigs in a weekend, plus working four or five nights a week somewhere. Hmm. So there was a lot of... Uh, call for this music and so we were able to really succeed with it. Hmm. And what's your sense moving to now you said now that we seem more distracted as people with our phones and all of the all the many distractions that we have now do you feel that that there's less of an interest in even just appreciating jazz music or what's your sense of even the capital region now? Well I've uh, because of our ages and the loss of most of my musicians through the years, why I've hired some young people who are good. And uh, one guy I can think of in particular said he sort of classified our music as a novelty. (laughs) Which... uh, What did he mean by that? uh, Well, it's just uh, that 
that he wasn't around like I have been to know that it was really part of the culture of jazz. Mm. And it's not, I don't think it gets respected enough anymore as that. I think it is more of a, oh, listen to this, you know, listen to what these guys are doing. And they realize that the band is swinging, it's cooking and, and all that sort of thing, but they don't have any idea mm. of the past, you know, and uh, the history of it. You know, uh, we do stuff that was written by famous people like uh, Jelly Roll Morton and uh, mm. uh, Louis Armstrong stuff and uh, King Oliver and those kind of things. And we still play those those uh, numbers. And uh, we're probably one of the few that does. New Orleans Bump is one of my favorite songs of Jelly Roll Morton. Did you ever play that song? No, I never did, no. Okay. I uh, played some pretty obscure stuff by him. Uh, we attempted uh, Shreveport Stomp at one time, which was considered to be pretty f- way out kind of a thing. Hmm. And uh, uh, we've played we've played some other things, but uh, I don't know. We still continue to play some, some of the more simpler versions of Jelly Roll stuff uh, because of the change in personnel that we have all the time. Hmm. It's not what it used to be. You know, we had six of us that, uh, or seven of us that stayed together. We rehearsed every week and uh, we put all these things together and uh, we were dedicated to it. But now it's, uh, you gotta find the best piano player you can find if you can get one that plays the stuff and that's pretty much the way it goes. Were there a lot of dancers at the time or how oh, have yeah. you seen the oh, swing yeah. dance? People dance to the music all the time. Yeah, in New Orleans, uh, the music was a dance music. And did you get to travel around much down south to New Orleans or other places? In Not the south? really. Uh, you know, I've been to a few places, but uh, not to any great extent. There was always plenty of work right around home, plenty of work. Hmm. And uh, I started a family and uh, I opened a music store as a means of staying. Uh, keeping support for a family and so on and uh, because the music began to dwindle. And this was Skip's music store, is that Skippy's correct? music, yeah. was here in Del Mar. We sold instruments and we rented instruments and uh, we, I studied a repair course and I used to travel around to schools, pick up repairs and, and that sort of thing. And the wind, the wind instruments, the band instruments were uh, were a big thing. Now it's a kind of electronics, you know. Mm-hmm. And now it seems like people are taught jazz rather than just happens. You know, it, it, with us it just happened. You know, it was something that was within us that just happened. But now there's ways they have to teach it. And I don't really feel it's quite the same, but that's the way it is. In the sense that now they learn certain styles or they call it things that perhaps for you it was natural and not something that you necessarily taught, but it's something that you worked through as a band. Yeah, it was just uh, something that you were able, you had within you and you were able to bring it out. This is something I've asked a couple musicians so far. Were there moments that you felt like the playing transcended 
everything else because you were a bit lost in the reverie of the moment. Can you remember any moments like that? I'm not too sure what, what you're trying to say there. Well, it's when playing seems to be... Well, okay, so I'm the house jazz dancer for the Speakeasy 518 in, in Albany. And there's so many times where I'll look back on the night and there are certain moments that jump out at me as, as someone's face expression or a, a point in the music where I had a moment of creativity. And, it's, and there's nothing that becomes more joyous than that. And I felt like time seems to cease in a sense and you're just performing and, and almost like you're self-actualizing right there <laughs> because everything seems just right um, because you're doing what you love. Is there something akin to that for what you felt like you had? Well, it's the way, it, uh, you know, a lot of people never took an instrument up, but, uh, you know, it's your way of relating to it and the fact that you can feel the music and understand it enough to be able to feel it and swing with it, and that's a nice thing. And that's, after all, what they did to the Benny Goodman Orchestra. Mm. And that's what they did to Louis Armstrong and Jelly Roll Morton. They couldn't sit still. It just uh, made you want to get up and dance and do your thing, even though you weren't a player. Uh, it's kind of like your voice, you know. Some people are singers. They have no instrument, but they can relate to music vocally, mm -hmm. and that's nice. What are some of the most memorable performances you've had with artists that you also admire for their career and for them? for their artistry as musicians? Well, I, I played a lot of gigs with a guy named Doc Cheatham. And Doc, uh, Doc uh, has been dead probably 10 years now. He died when he was 93. He played the night before he died. Wow. But he was, he was also a part of the Jelly Roll Morton band. He substituted for Louis Armstrong. He played with Benny Goodman. He played with all the greats, you know, he knew all the people, played with Billie Holiday, he was with everybody. And Doc and I became great friends and I had him up to play with us and he liked playing with us and we got to know one another and he took me on some gigs and, and we played together a lot. And a very, very nice man and very talented. And just the music just flowed, just, fell right out right the end of the horn. Just unbelievable. Hmm. That was a great experience. But, you know, he's gone now, so there's us to carry the flag, I guess, you know. So we do the best we can. But I played with a lot of other people that are in that same level. Uh, I never played with Louis Armstrong, but I played with a lot of people who played with him. Hmm. But, uh, Anyway, there's been a lot of good ones in my life. Uh, I played with Jimmy McPartland, Marion McPartland's husband. Hmm. He was uh, part of what they call the Austin High Gang in Chicago. They started the Chicago jazz scene. And uh, Chicago jazz uh, was sort of New Orleans jazz, but instead of being two beat, uh, like with a tuba player, Bump, 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 bump. Became a bass player. Dum, 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 dum. You know, so that's uh, was the difference between the styles primarily, and so uh, it became another style of jazz, but part of the evolution of it. 
and then I moved on to New York and uh, I got to know and play with a lot of a lot of players because we were close to New York and I used to get down there a lot. Now you play the clarinet. Do I'm a clarinetist, yeah. <laughs> do, do you feel like the clarinet chose you or you chose the clarinet? I don't know. My inspiration was a guy that played the sax. He's no longer with us, but we were in school together. And I also had a cousin who was a sax player who was older than me, but uh, I sort of liked that saxophone. So they said to me, well, you know, if you want to be a good saxophone player, you should play clarinet first hmm. because it's a, it's a basic forerunner for all of the Woodwind family. Clarinet's good. And so, okay, so I took it up and here I am, still with it, you know. <laughs> but I have managed to, you know, be able to play the saxophone. Now there's the clarinetists that jazz fans probably could all name off the top of their head. Um, but are there any influences that you've had as a musician who maybe we wouldn't know about, or perhaps some more obscure artists that anyone who truly loves clarinetists, they should be able to, they should go dig into their music? Well, I don't know. I liked, uh, I liked Pee Wee Russell. Uh, of course, there was always Benny Goodman. He was very slick and he made a business out of being able to swing. <laughs> but uh, most people know that name. Uh, there's a few more people who have come along more lately. And some of them are Bob Wilbur, and he's living in England now. He must be 90. And uh, he had a, a cohort, Kenny Deverne, and they had a group together. Kenny Deverne played clarinet. Bob Wilbur played clarinet and soprano saxophone. Matter of fact, they both played soprano saxophone. But Kenny Deverne and Bob Wilbur are two of my great inspirations. And uh, I got to know them both, and I played with Kenny Deverne a couple of times. Hmm. We'll be right back with Six Count. I'm your host, Zara Wild. Stay with us. We'd like to thank Giants of Jazz Radio, based in Lancashire, England, for airing this show. The station brings you the best in classic jazz, playing tracks from the 1940s through the 70s. You can support the station by visiting their website at giantsofjazzradio.co.uk and clicking donate. And now, back to the show. Now, we've talked a little bit about how the scene has changed and perhaps there is less interest or knowledge about jazz um, and the history and the people who made it happen and continued it on. So I'm wondering, as someone who's trying to document the people who are still influencing the scene and are still carrying those voices from the past forward, what advice might you have for people like me and, and how we can continue to carry the flag, as you said, and so that this music and this history won't be lost for other musicians? Um, how can we be doing our homework or our research to make sure that it's not lost? Well, I don't know exactly how it goes nowadays, but we used to say uh, the phonograph record was tried and true because it's still there uh, for those who wish to dig into it. 
and the recordings of all those people who started this thing, uh, that's a good place to start. Listen to the people who brought it along. They started it. It's uh, actually, it's, it's America's only contribution to the arts. Uh, there's been a lot of people who prefer to argue with me about it, and they say, well, what about rock and roll? What about this? What about that? But uh, jazz is the only one that has been recognized as America's contribution to the arts, really. And so and uh, it's more welcome in uh, Europe and foreign countries still today than it, than it is here. Why do you think that is? Because it's because it's American-born, or...? Maybe things aren't so fast some of those other places, you know, life is not going so fast, but I can't, I can't really say that for sure nowadays because we got all of this cell phone business and all that, you know, it's come into the picture. Mm -hmm. But I think, uh, I always say to guys that want to play with me, listen, the big thing, put the old, put the old King Oliver, King Oliver on there and listen. You know, you, that's all. Maybe try to emulate what they're doing to see what's going on and put it together, put the pieces together. It seems like it, there are some similarities with musicians and dancers where you listen to learn because I'm trying to understand the complexities of the beats so that I can choreograph in more sophisticated or interesting or exciting ways. Yeah, well, they've done a lot of things with beats in recent years, you know. Uh, you know, uh, Back in the beginning, uh, we had a lot of 2-4, four, 4-4 four, four time, and uh, some 6-8, but now uh, with the, I guess uh, one of the things that sort of brought it around was Dave Brubeck with his 5-4 time and stuff like that, things of those, uh, of that nature, and uh, they came along to put some different times to music and be able to jazz with it. What drew you to Dixieland jazz to begin with? Well, it, it was popular during my time, so you could turn the radio on. If you had a radio in your car, you could turn the radio on and you could hear Louis Armstrong. You know, yeah. it, was, it was part of the popular music scene. It was there. Uh, nowadays, it's very unusual if you ever do hear that stuff, unless it happens to be a jazz radio show. My drummer is Tim Coakley, who has the Tim Coakley Jazz Show on WAMC every Saturday night. That's he, right, I've heard about that. Yeah, he puts in an hour, or at least an hour's worth of jazz. But he, he mixes it up. He plays some modern stuff and some old stuff, too. So you played at the Fountain for over 40 years, is that correct? 48 years, yeah. 48, wow. Yeah. And what were some memorable things about that uh, era, we'll call it? Well, the fountain was, uh, it became a place that was really internationally known uh, because there were jazz publications. Uh, Mississippi Rag was one of them and some of those. And uh, I can remember a, a couple of people coming to see the band at the fountain and they were from Australia. They happened to see it in the, uh, the Mississippi Rag publication. And uh, so we we drew people from all over, plus many musicians that were 
really good, good players that would be traveling through or something, and they'd stop in to sit in or whatever. Uh, uh, if I can take some of your tape space, or it's not tape anymore. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Bobby Pratt was a piano and trombonist. His brother played trombone with us for 25 years, and his brother Norm and his wife sang with the band also, with the Riverboat Jazz Band. And Bobby used to come up and take a weekend off and come up and play with us at the fountain. Bobby Pratt was uh, playing in a restaurant in New York and one of the waiters there was Tony Bennett. Wow. And uh, he used to say to him, never mind that tray, he was be carrying the tray. Never mind, put that tray down and come up and sing. You've got more going for you up here than you have down there. <laughs> and he kept begging him to, to uh, come and pl sing. I think I would die if he were my waiter. That would be incredible. Well, he was just a young kid then, too, you know. And uh, So, anyway, uh, Bobby Pratt died, and because of his connection to us, and Bobby was living in New York, St. Peter's in New York had uh, always had uh, masses and uh, services for those who died in the jazz field. And so Bobby Pratt had his service there, and because of my connection, they asked us to go down and play that. And we did, and uh, we took a bus down, we took all the Pratts, the local Pratts, we could get on the bus and some fans and the band. And we went down and played played a couple of spirituals for Bobby Pratt when he died for his service. And much to my surprise, Tony Bennett walks in. And uh, he came over and sat down on a bench. And he was only a seat or two away from me. And he had some guys with him that wouldn't let him sing because it's all part of the contract business and all that. So, but they did let him talk and he came up and he told that story about Bobby Pratt playing the piano when he was a waiter. <laughs> and he said, uh, I can owe my career to Bobby Pratt. Hmm. Pretty touching. Yeah. And so anyway, Bobby Pratt was one at the fountain quite often. People didn't know that. It was just music. Just good music and that's it, you know, it's all, it's part of the fun. I have 50 stories like that, but anyway, that's one. Hmm. Was there another surprising person who ever walked through the doors that even though you'd never practiced together, you were able to just say, okay, we're going to do sea jam blues or something and be able to go right in? Yeah, there was a lot of people like that. I just, uh, you know... I don't know, there's, there was a lot. Eddie Hubble was a trombone player who was with the band. And uh, Eddie Hubble was just a marvelous musician. He played with Buddy Rich and Eddie Condon, the world's greatest jazz band. He played all over the world. Uh, Eddie Hubble was very, very well known. And he was right in that category with Doc Cheatham. And uh, Norm, my trombone player, had died, and I got this phone call from Eddie Hubble. And he said, my father lives in Kandahar, uh, his father played 
trumpet in a circus band. And he said, I'm back here because I want to be near my father. But he said, uh, Do you, are you going to be needing a trombone player? And I thought, wow. Eddie Hubble, wow. So, I, you know, he came with the band and he was with us on and off for another 20 years or more. And so uh, I had a great experience with Ed Hubble. He was uh, very good, but that's just another one. I mean, they have no idea. Some people have no idea what kind of talent was walking in there and playing. As they're eating, I've eaten, I think, a burger and fries there. It's, it's such a non-assuming kind of place. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. It's, uh, you know, and I'm sure there were people that probably said, I don't like this stuff. Let's get out of here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so that's part of the game, I guess. And where else can people from the Capital Region still hear you play? Well, what's happened in recent years is, uh, I'll go back to 1980 if I want to call that recent. Uh, we played the Olympics for ABC. By and, Lake Placid, Lake, is Lake that right? Placid, yeah. And we worked every day there. It's still the best paying job I ever had. But uh, anyway, uh, when we were there, they gave us uh, a motel and credentials for everything. Uh, and uh, so many stories every day. And we would only play like 20 minutes before an event. Hmm. And so we were part of that. But that was a very good experience. As a matter of fact, we're, I've never seen it, but uh, we are supposed to be the very first thing on documentary tape in the Smithsonian Institute uh, at the top of Whiteface Mountain. The cameras zoomed out of uh, Ernie's tuba sousaphone, and right across the bell of the sousaphone was uh, 1980 World Olympic Games Lake Placid, New York. And they backed the camera up, and there we were, up, oh. up on the top of the mountain in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been kind of hard to play, but then you're also playing at the Olympics, so I, I suppose you just... We couldn't play good. It was too cold. But what we played was as good as we could, you know. But uh, we played for that Eric Hyden, the skater, every day uh, in front of Olympic Arena. We played in town. We played all over there. And... Uh, you know, we've had a great, a great experience there. We also played, uh, we were ready to leave. It was a Sunday night, and we're, every, everybody was all done. And the phone rang, and we were just packing out, just getting ready to leave. phone rang, and it was a broadcast center, and they said, Oh, you're still here. I said, Yeah. Do you have a band? I said, I don't know. <laughs> we need you at the Olympic Arena. We might win the game. So... I, I said, I'll do what I can do. So I did manage to, no cell phones in those days, but I did manage to get a hold of everybody. And we went down into the front of Olympic Arena, and although we had full credentials hanging on our chains, there was no room for us in there. Hmm. So we were outside. So uh, all of a sudden the doors flung open and people came running out screaming and cheering. And I said, well, they must have won. And so 
they came running out and they picked up Ernie with his sousaphone. They picked him up. They were just so joyous they over this. Picked up Ernie. Not they picked him up oh. with his tuba. And the tuba's no small instrument either. No, and it wasn't sousaphone. Those parade guys that goes around you, you know, with the bell front. Ah. And so they picked him up. I was afraid for him. But anyway, that uh, whole thing got on the front page of the New York Post the next day. Hmm. So, you know, there was a lot of memorable experiences that I've had because of the music, you know. Hmm. And what I'm else? Thankful for. What else was it like to be playing at the 1980 Winter Olympics? What was a everyday kind of experience like? Foreigners, people who loved the music, people from Poland, all over the world. They would just stand in front of the band and cheer. They loved the music. They just was, oh, this is what we want to hear. Please come to Poland or whatever, you know, and that sort of thing. And uh, I started to say, what we did nights while we were up there was we, three of us, the banjo and the tuba and myself, went to a tavern. And, and uh, although we had free food and everything up there, we went to this place and we ate a burger and we played, you know, maybe an hour or something, several times during the two weeks. And uh, that's how I st started a trio. And then people uh, began to, uh, later on, people began to uh, get uh, economy-minded, and uh, they decided that, oh, we'll get, uh, we'll hire Skip, and we'll call it the Riverboat Jazz Band, and we'll only hire three guys. So my fans would come around and say, where's the trombone player? Where's the drummer? You know, that sort of thing. And so I changed the name. I changed the name to Clarinet Marmalade because there's always a, always a clarinet. And Clarinet hmm. Marmalade is the name of a song that was written a hundred years ago. Whose song? Uh, it was written by the original Dixieland Jazz Band back in 1917. Okay. But uh, anyway, I said, well, that, that'd be a good name for this trio. And that would be a way of telling people that, well, you were going to hear the music, but you weren't going to hear the piano player, you weren't gonna hear the drummer, you know. So I had to change the name because they started doing that. Hmm. They could hire the trio for half the money of the, the full band. So they got, club owners got budget-minded with this and they decided to do that. I had to explain this to McGeary's when I went to work down there recently. They, they took over us, or took us over uh, after the fountain ended for us. And I had to explain this to them down there because I didn't want them to advertise Riverboat Jasmine if they could only pay for a trio. Hmm. So it was a Monday night, so we all got together and started talking just like we did in 71 at the fountain. And we decided, well, we'll, we'll work for cheaper just to keep one night, keep us on the map. And so we came upon an agreement so we're able to have the whole band there uh, to keep it alive mm. and keep the faith of the music alive. So it's been a lot of crazy things go on. And you still play there on Mondays once a month? We work there the second Monday every month from 7 till 9. It's only two hours. Mm. So anyway, that was part of, the, part of the deal. At first we were going to work three hours and we said, well, you want a bigger band, let's work two hours. And 
So we we bargained. We Tess and I got together, and she was a great gal. And uh, so we're we're an unusual fixture down there because they have different stuff than us. Hmm. But uh, anyway, we're hoping it works out. Very neat. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Oh, I don't know. I, you know, you could talk to me all day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for your time this morning. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. Anytime. Thank you for listening to Six Count. I'm your host, Zara Wild, and that was Skip Parsons. This show is listener-supported. If you're interested in contributing to the project, you can find the link to our donations page on our website at sixcount.simplecast.com. Your support is greatly appreciated. You can let me know what you thought of the episode or who I should speak to next by emailing me. I'm at sixcountpodcast at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter at sixcountpodcast. Thank you.